This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been gathering big ideas from some of the most interesting and creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we take ourselves out of our comfort zone by discussing surprise interview clips that are unexpected by both me and my guest. I am very, very happy to be joined today by Alison Gopnik. She is an internationally recognized expert in children's learning and development, professor of psychology, and an affiliate professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the author of many, many books, including The Philosophical Baby. And her new book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, is a response to the fact that parenting has become a verb, a powerful middle-class trend, a lucrative self-help industry, and sometimes a kind of blood sport, uh, while developmental science paints a very different picture of how children actually grow and learn and what it means to be a good parent. Welcome to Think Again, Alice. Glad to be here. I guess we can start with sort of the big, broad picture. Like, what has gone wrong? And I guess we should also be clear that this is like a very specific this parenting that we're talking about, this is happening within a very specific cultural context. It's probably not everywhere. Right, right. But what's, what's gone wrong for many middle-class parents in terms of how they're approaching raising their children, how we think about Well, a very strange thing happened at the end of the 20th century. It was called parenting. So the very word parenting only first appears in the dictionary in 1958, and it only became common in the 1970s. Right. By now, it's become enormous. It's become the model for what being a parent is all about. And that word, parenting as a verb, came with a particular kind of picture of what being a parent is about. And that picture was that you could somehow shape or mold your child into a particular kind of adult. I feel like I can think of, or I have echoes in my mind of like old 1950s movies or TV programs where parents are talking about raising children of good moral character and there is this idea of at least actively inculcating values that maybe precedes this this trend. Well, yeah, as long as we've had children, one of the things that we've done with children and in fact one of the evolutionary functions of the relations between parents and children is that parents pass on their 
values and knowledge and approaches to the world to their children. That's what culture is all about. Right. But it's equally true that as long as we've been around, children have taken that information and reshaped it, revised it, changed it to suit the new environments that children were growing up in. Right. And if you think about it, if all that culture involved was just replicating the previous generation, there wouldn't be much reason for it. Culture is this really fascinating balance between imitation and innovation. So children are incredibly sure. good at learning from parents, and parents are very good at passing on their values. They do it just by embodying those values. Yeah, that was something I was thinking about was, you know, because I think it may have been only a couple of days ago that I was lecturing my eight-year-old son about something. And, and while reading your book, I was thinking, you know, this lecturing business, like, it's, it's probably nonsense from a developmental and neurological standpoint. You can't actually lecture values into somebody so much as hope that they will... I mean, they'll observe and imitate and learn. Right. right. So, you know, part of what I think also happened at the end of the 20th century was we had a particular peculiar institution called school that started in the 19th century. And right. suddenly that became everybody's picture of what learning was all about. So when we developmental psychologists said, children have these incredibly powerful brains, they're learning more in the first three years than they ever will again, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The way people interpreted that was, oh, I get it. So they should be in school. Learning is a teacher giving a lesson to a child. And what the developmental science tells us is sort of exactly the opposite. The way that children are learning is by observing, by participating, by playing. Those are the ways that children are learning, not by sitting and being lectured by a teacher, even when that teacher is, maybe especially when that teacher is a parent. I mean, a lot of the messages in your book, which are consistent with the work that you've done, you know, for many years, remind me of the divide between sort of parental and grandparental thinking. Mm -hmm. You happen to be a grandparent at this point, but you are also a serious researcher of developmental psychology. Um, you know, I think about how grandparents sort of always want parents to relax and right. just let the child play and be a little more messy than the parent wants. Has that shifted for you at all? At all you well, know? I, I think, you know, one of the things that I say is this, this book is the product of a boba at Berkeley. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's my, that's my self-identity. And certainly having grandchildren is a way of getting a kind of perspective on the whole process. When you're a parent yourself, it's kind of like every moment you're so engaged in it, it's hard to look back and try and make sense out of it. And becoming a grandparent was one way of doing that. Curiously enough, at the same time that I was becoming a grandparent, this new research was showing how important and crucial grandparents, and especially grandmothers, were to human evolution. That grandparenting is actually a special, actually contributed to the ability of these terribly immature humans to exist at all. And I think also was one of the principal engines of culture. So grandmothers yeah. are the ones who you learn the traditions, the recipes, the old wives' tales, the silly jokes, all those things come from being a grandmother. And part of the reason why this parenting picture became so prevalent in the 20th century was because for the first time in human history, people didn't have very much experience of caregiving when they had their own children. Right. So for most of human history, when you had a baby, the way you found out how to take care of that baby was that you had taken care of younger siblings and younger mm -hmm. cousins, and you had a whole network of people grandmothers especially, but also aunts and uncles and cousins and friends who had also taken care of children. So you had this deep, profound knowledge of caregiving. And when you have a 40-year-old who's sometimes never even picked up a baby, certainly hasn't right. cared for them very much, and even teenage babysitters have sort of disappeared from the scene for 
upper middle class families because the kids are too busy prepping for college to spend time doing a babysitting job, then I think it's quite natural that when you have a baby, you think, oh, okay, I know how to work, I know how to go to school, there must be a variant of working and going to school that I can use for caring for a child. Right, and well, and there's a lot of fear that goes along with being in that position of not have, lacking the knowledge, having this vulnerable little human being at your fingertips, and, and, you know, and into that space of fear can enter the self-help books and so on. Yeah, so I think it's a combination, sort of, it's sort of a, an evil combination of the stakes seem to be higher than they ever were before because we know that things like education are, are central to success. So it feels like the stakes are higher and it also feels as if the competence level is lower and that's a combination that fuels this literally billion dollar parenting industry. I think it would be better for both parents and it's, you know, it's easy to say, well, just chill, but um, <laughs> the advice is basically just, just chill. chill. <laughs> <laughs> the book, maybe that, that would have been an interesting alternate <laughs> title for the book. Parents, just chill. Just chill. Yeah. Um, so I wanted, uh, I wanted to go into another part. You write about technology, which is obviously a huge fear and concern for a lot of parents today. Um, this is the beginning of your chapter about children and technology, and I wondered if you could just read that sure. to us. So, they gave her the device when she was only two years old. It had a sophisticated graphical interface, sending signals along the optic nerve that swiftly transported her brain to an alternate universe, a captivating other world. By the time she was seven, she would smuggle it into school, and engage it secretly under her desk instead of listening to the teachers. By 15, visions from the device, a girl entering a ballroom, a man dying on a battlefield, seemed more real than her actual adolescent life. She would sit motionless with it for hours on end, oblivious to everything around her. Its addictive grip was so great that she often stayed up half the night, unable to put it down. When she grew up, the device dominated her house. No room was free from it. No activity, not even eating or going to the bathroom, was carried on without its aid. Even when she made love, it was images from the device that filled her mind. When one of her children had to go to the hospital with a concussion, her first thought was to be sure that she took the device along. Saddest of all, as soon as her children were old enough, she did everything she could to get them hooked on the device too. Psychologists showed that she literally could not disengage from it. If the device could reach the optic nerve, she would automatically and inescapably be in its grip. Neuroscientists demonstrated that large portions of her brain, parts that had once been devoted to understanding the real world, had been co-opted by the device. A tale of the dystopian technological future? No, just autobiography. The device is, of course, the printed book, and I've been its willing victim all my life. So what's wonderful, first of all, as I said before the interview, you completely fooled me until the point, maybe the point where the parent tries to get the children hooked on the <laughs> device, at which point I was like, huh, what's going on here? But, but basically your point is that throughout all, pretty much all we know of human history, parents have been resisting their children's interest in new technologies, have been afraid of it, and yet the science, it's very, very difficult to pin down in any generation what the effects are of the technology on right. the child's brains, yeah. So one of the interesting things about human beings is that we have this, what people sometimes call the cultural ratchet. So 
we can take all the things that we've learned and we pass it on to the next generation. One of the characteristics of that ratchet is that the things that we're born with are just, aren't technology, they're just stuff. Right. And the things that get invented in our lifetime are really scary new technology. So if you look historically at the introduction of essentially every technology, the immediate reaction has been fear and loathing. Right. So I'm very distracted by my cell phone. I'm not distracted by the billboards that surround me when I walk mm. down the street. Why is it that I'm not stopping every second to figure out, wait a minute, that's that little squidgly thing, that's a letter A, and then you put it together with a T, and then that makes this particular <laughs> word, right? It's just not happening. And it's because that reshaping that I talked about in the passage about the book device, that reshaping that happened very early in our, in our brains enables us to process that information in a spontaneous, automatic way. And one thing I've observed is that it seems like, I, I don't think developmental psychology is, is free of the same kinds of prejudices that exist elsewhere. That there are studies that come out that seem to have been designed based on a fear that something might be the case. Like, I keep seeing these studies about how reading on an e-reader, reading on a screen, does not stick in your brain the same way that reading on you know paper does and these are kind of held up and trumpeted as like see like it's it's not as good it's dangerous but gotcha. we just we don't I mean know. anybody who tells you that they know the effect that technology is going to have on children is lying for better or for or for worse because we won't know for uh, another 20 years and our anecdotes and our experience as adults isn't going to tell us what that experience is like but if the future has been like the past which is kind of the assumption we make in science and history then it will change, will function differently, but the changes will be for good or for ill. And it's kind of interesting that if you think about our past technologies, we still have spoken poetry. We still have dance. I, I actually tried this exercise of getting people to think, was there ever a means of communication that human beings developed that then completely disappeared? And it's never happened. The way we do theater right. and dance is different than the way we did theater and dance when we were hunter-gatherers. But theater and dance are still there. And I think even you know my, my beloved penguin paperbacks may mm -hmm. not be the apex of human civilization for the next generation. But I think the evidence is that those things will coexist with other kinds of communication and knowledge and information. That's beautifully said. And I think that's a great place for us to now transition into the second part of the okay, show, where sure. we talk about the totally surprised subjects and uh -huh. may go anywhere at all okay. um, to the far reaches of physics or whatever it might be. This is Ryan Holiday, author of a book called Ego is the Enemy. The video is titled, Can You Drop Out of College Without Throwing Your Life Away? If I get an email from someone and they say, I'm failing all my classes, I want to drop out just like you did, I say, you know, you need to figure out why you were not successful in school and solve that problem before you strike out on your own where you have even less of a safety net. I do think questioning whether college is the right choice for you is worth doing. And I do think the stigma about dropping out is worth reducing as well. You know, when you drop out of college and your parents go, you're throwing your life away, how can you do this? You know, you can't say it worked out for Bill Gates because the response is you're not Bill Gates, right? And really, you can be successful without a college degree and it's not as hard as people think. We shouldn't make it incredibly hard for a 20-year-old to bet on themselves 
and to, to make them feel like they're throwing their life away for, for trying something different. The idea of mine not going to college, like that would never have occurred to me for five mm -hmm. seconds. How, mm -hmm. how was that for you as a kid? Was, was that an option? Well, I think it was different. So, uh, you know, my brother, for example, who is now probably the most famous of the Gopniks who writes for The New Yorker, did drop out of college. I actually left in my second year. I had a boyfriend who then became my husband and went to travel around Eastern Europe in a VW bus for an entire term. But my then you own came children. Back, right? Yeah, then I yeah. came back. Yeah. Um, so I think you know, college is a, a particular way that we try to give children a kind of extended. It's. A, a, I do think there's a kind of interesting tension, which is that things like universities are ways of extending this period of protected childhood, which enables you to learn even longer than it ever was in our history before. So now we can have you know, 35-year-olds who've. In, a, in essence been protected children exploring <laughs> right. and learning and you can make an argument, I've made the argument, that we scientists are just children who never grow up, never actually go out and do anything practical in the world. We stay in that protected learning space forever. I would make um, the same point about artists. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think scientists and artists are people who we are kind of our, they're kind of like our designated players, our designated, our designated children. <laughs> right. um, and I think there's a really interesting tension between the fact that that gives us a generation that's more knowledgeable than ever before, has learned more, but can also be 35 and never actually have done anything, never actually had to be in that grown-up role of being focused and deciding to accomplish a particular kind of goal. And I think there's, a, I think there's just an intrinsic tension, one of those, what Isaiah Berlin called, you know, life's basic tragedy, something that can't be resolved between the exploration drive, the drive to just find out right. and learn more, and the drive to actually exploit, to actually do things, to get things done. Um, and I don't think any society's ever completely resolved that, and I don't think we have. That gets to an interesting tension that that often plays out in within the university. I tend to think in a kind of um, classic liberal humanist way about right. college. I feel like college is supposed to be a time where you can take many different classes. Yes, you might specialize intensely in one thing, but you're also having exposure to many. You get to play around. It's messy uh, in a way, mm -hmm. that second childhood. Um, but then but then sometimes we get these utilitarian trends where they want to turn college into um, you know, a, a track to a career. Where do you, and it sounds like you might be somewhere in the middle on, on that. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's interesting. I, I talk about this in the book because in, uh, say, forager cultures, what happens is that when you get to be school-aged, you get some kind of apprenticeship. So you actually develop the specific skills that you're going to need as an adult. And right. I think when you look at school-aged children or look at adolescents, they just are dying to actually be able to do something, to actually have a, a skill, whether it's you know right. Simone Biles becoming the world's greatest gymnast or, or someone learning how to do music, that that's a really important, natural way that older children are learning. Now, the thing that I think is kind of sad is that if you compare, say, one kind of learning is becoming an apprentice, becoming really skilled at doing something particularly well, another form of learning is this kind of free-form exploration. Most schools, including sadly most universities, have ended up not doing either of those things. What they've ended up doing is teaching people how to go to school. So that right. natural apprenticeship drive that you see in school-age children now becomes, okay, what are the skills that are valued in this society? They're taking tests and getting good grades. And then we get them as university students and 
we say, all they care about is getting good <laughs> grades and what's going to be on the test. It's terrible. How did this happen? And of course, we selected people who had been learned, had learned how to be maestros of test taking well, and this uh, is why aficionados I want, of grades. I mean, this is why I wonder, you know, reading your book and reading anything like this that speaks to me, like, is it ever possible to put that genie back in the bottle? Is there any right. way ever, you know, aside from individuals making decisions about their well, children? Well, you know, here's one thing, for instance, that I've suggested in, in print about a way that we could organize universities. If you look at something like science, for instance, when you actually start really doing science in graduate school, then you become an apprentice again. So you're not taking exams and taking classes anymore. You're being in the lab with the master scientist who's giving you a hard time about how <laughs> you've screwed up that particular, that particular study. And I think a nice model for university might be that you, know, you apprentice yourself to five different labs or humanists, and then you just you know, spend a year hanging out with a historian and seeing what she's actually doing, or hanging out with a scientist and actually doing some of the scout work that's part of science. I think that would be a much mm -hmm. better model than this rather strange, literally medieval model that we have of the person who's getting up and reading to you from the book because there's only one copy of the book to read from. I, I think one of the reasons, for instance, why kids, especially underprivileged kids, are so enthusiastic about sports and music versus the stuff that they're actually learning in school is because those are among the last places where an apprenticeship model actually applies. If you think about, if we taught baseball the way that we teach science, right. no one would get to play the game until they were 27. What <laughs> we'd be doing is getting kids to fill out exams about baseball, and maybe you know, in college you could get to reproduce great baseball plays of the past. Right. Um, that's pretty much what we do with science, and there's no reason why we should. If you think about how you become a scientist or my other profession, you become a writer, you do it by doing it and by having a good editor or a good mentor who tells you that you've done it completely wrong and you need to try again. That's a kind of model that we could use that would also mean that people could either spend some of their time doing the kind of freeform exploration that we do in college, mm. but could also be using some of that time to actually develop a real skill. And interestingly, I think part of the problem may come from a sharp delineation in our, in our minds between the world of play, the childhood world of play, and the adult world of, of work, which while that is a real distinction, you know, it may be that we're trying to delay, as you said, the entry into, into the world of work, in a sense, um, and give them more playtime. But if you enable them to master a skill, I mean, you mentioned playing an instrument, they become able to do that adult kind of play much faster. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 I think the ideal would be to try and get a balance even as adults between yeah. the fact that you know, we're neotenous, we're childlike even as a species. We continue to have this ability to play and explore and innovate. And then we also have this ability to become these swift, skilled, focused adults with particular skills. And trying to do both of those things is what, say, an educational system should be all about. Yeah, I, th I think I agree. Okay, well, I think, shall we see what the second yeah. clip is? That was fun. Steven Pinker on yeah, artificial intelligence. Okay. Oh, this should be fun. Okay. I think that the arguments that once we have super intelligent computers and robots, they will inevitably want to take over and do away with us, 
comes from Prometheus and Pandora myths. It's based on confusing the idea of high intelligence with megalomaniacal goals. Uh, I think it's a projection of alpha male psychology onto the very concept of intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to solve problems, to achieve goals. It doesn't tell you what those goals are. And there's no reason to think that just the concentrated analytic ability to solve goals is going to mean that one of those goals is going to be to subjugate humanity or to achieve unlimited power. It just so happens that the intelligence that we're most familiar with, namely ours, is a product of the Darwinian process of natural selection, which is an inherently competitive process, uh, which means that uh, a lot of the organisms that are highly intelligent also have a craving for power and, uh, and an ability to to be utterly callous to those who stand in their way. If we create intelligence, uh, that's intelligent design. I mean, our intelligent design uh, creating something, and unless we program it with the goal of subjugating uh, less intelligent beings, there's no reason to think that it will naturally evolve in that direction. Uh, and we know, by the way, that it's possible to have high intelligence without megalomaniacal or uh, homicidal or genocidal tendencies. Because we do know that there is a highly advanced form of intelligence that tends not to have that uh, desire, and they're called women. Well, I, I tend to agree with the idea that our fear of artificial intelligence is, is sort of irrational. I think it doesn't come maybe quite so much from megalomania as from the fact that anything that reaches the boundaries between the human and the inhuman is disturbing to us. So there's the famous uncanny valley when we see faces that look kind of almost human but not quite. Right. That's creepy. Or invasion of the body snatch. Yeah, there's something about that that's always bothered us. I think rather than thinking about Pandora, I'd think about the golem, right? The golem is a great mythology mm -hmm. about what happens when something that isn't human takes on human form, or Frankenstein, those happened long before we had any ability to understand artificial intelligence. And interestingly, I can't think of any myth that goes the other way around, where something that's not human that takes on human forms is benign and benevolent and <laughs> right, a helper, right? right? I think uh, Steve is right that that's part of what's happening. I would uh, demure from the idea that the most intelligent creatures that we know are the alpha males, though, or even the women, the most intelligent creatures we know unquestionably are children. And in fact, the kind of intelligence that's most important is this kind of creative, imaginative intelligence that we mm. see most characteristically in children, exactly because they're not trying to rule the world, exactly because they're not being megalomaniacs. They're not only not being megalomaniacs, they can't even get their shoes tied and get out to right. daycare in the morning. So if you look at what AI actually can do and what AI systems can do, it's still true that they're very good at extracting patterns from data in the world, and they're very good at solving a specific problem if you give them a specific problem. What every three-year-old can do, and we have not, we're not even, don't even have a clue of understanding how an artificial system could do, is to think up a new solution, think up an idea that nobody's ever had before, think up right. a counterfactual. And at the moment, the only way we can get machines to do that is either they just generate random variation, which isn't going to be relevant, or they stick to the things that have worked in the past. Being able to think of something that's genuinely new and genuinely relevant to uh, a problem or an idea, that's something that every three-year-old does. In fact, we have data that suggests that three-year-olds, four-year-olds do it better than undergraduates or adults do it. And we have no idea how to make get an artificial system that can do that. Now, having said that, we do know very much how to create a real intelligent system. 
we've all done it and it's a lot more fun than actually having to get a computer science degree because of course we know that every one of those child children is a real physical intelligence system. So what, whatever <laughs> it is that makes them intelligent, there are real physical systems that are intelligent and as a scientist I sort of have faith that at some point we'll understand how that works. But the kinds of systems that we have now that are leading to the new spring of artificial intelligence aren't even in the same ballpark. They're not even doing the same kinds of things as those children are doing. So it's still, is that still considered, I mean, you don't work directly on artificial intelligence, I guess, or do you? I collaborate, I actually collaborate with people who do things in machine, in machine learning. And one of the things that we've done is try and see what kind of systems would you need to design that could do the same things as children could do, and vice versa. One of the main things that we've done over the last 15 years is to show that very young children are implicitly, unconsciously, using a lot of the same techniques that machine learning systems use. Hmm. But the way that we've been able to show that is by, for example, one of the things that we can train a computer to do and that children do spontaneously is take a particular pattern of data, for example, and find the pattern in that data. That's right. something that uh, that's something a that pre-existing pattern that we know that they're looking exactly. for. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And in our experiments, what we do is give the children a pattern that we know means something, and then see if they can infer something about what that pattern means. And the children are amazingly good at doing that. Right. What the children can do that we don't really understand and we don't know how to simulate in a computer is to look at that pattern and think of a solution or an idea that none of us have ever thought of before. And so, that's something that we don't really understand. So that's still considered like a real paradigm shift type of change right. in artificial intelligence if, if and when that happens. If and when that happens. Yeah. Although even then, I, I don't think there's any particular reason to believe that that would lead them to want to be our overlords. But we're very far from even that degree of intelligence. I guess what, what is potentially frightening is that you have a thing which may be autonomous, may be made autonomous, right? May be able to make its own decisions and so forth. And Pinker says, well, we if we design it in a certain way, then it won't want to, why would it want to be our overlord? Right. But there are a lot of people in the world. There are a lot of scientists in the world. There are a lot of like hack technologists in the world. Well, Anyone can make... Yeah, I mean, I think, and, you know. and here I agree with people like my colleague Stuart Russell, you know, the problem isn't artificial intelligence, it's natural stupidity. <laughs> so we have a lot of stupid technology and we have stupid, powerful technology that could create really giant disasters. You know, the fact that we have weapons that could destroy the world already is worrying enough. The fact that they could be triggered by an algorithm is even more worrying. So I think we're quite right to worry and put work into trying to make sure that we have the right kind of controls over those systems. But I don't think it really has to do with how intelligent they are. It's dangerous and scary enough, in fact, maybe even scarier if they're making those decisions stupidly than if they're <laughs> making them intelligently. Yeah, I mean, I think once the technology's out there, the controls are going to be hard. Because people can take it and reverse engineer it and yeah. do what well, they like with but it. But as I say, I mean, you know, <laughs> we can put in a computer virus that can shut down a reactor plant now, you don't need to have anything very smart to be able to be extremely destructive. That's true. Yeah, we're already we're already there more or less. Okay. Shall we shall we see what video three has sure. in store? All right. This is Sonia Arison. She's a futurist and a policy analyst and the video is titled Adultolescence, it's the beginning of a new age. So let's see where we're going with this. Human life expectancy in eighteen fifty in the United States was forty three years. Today, it's around 80 years. We've roughly doubled it already. And so the question is, is well, what happened to family life during that time? 
And if you look, you can see that the age of first marriage has gone up significantly. Age of first-time mothers has gone up already. I mean, right now we're in the era of the 40-year-old mother. And I think that at some point, there'll be a time when we're in the era of the 70-year-old mother. We're at the point where we're going to see new life phases coming along. And then with longer lives, we might also have other periods of life that, for instance, when, when we extended our, our life expectancy, a new phase of life came along called adolescence. And that didn't used to exist before. We used to go straight from childhood to adulthood. But as we lived longer and healthier, this new phase of life came along called adolescence. And now, scholars are starting to see another phase of life, which they're calling adult lessons. And that's the time after adolescence, but you're not quite an adult yet. And as we live longer and longer, we might see new phases of life like that. It is certainly true that, from an evolutionary perspective, what evolutionary biologists call our life history, which is how our life unfolds over time, is really a crucially important part of how we function as human beings. And our childhood was already being extended just in the course of our evolution to home, being homo sapiens. And interestingly, our lifespan was being extended at the same time. So right. if you look at chimps, you know, by the time most female chimps are 50, they outgrow their fertility. They're ready to die even when they're well taken care of. And even in forager cultures, women have been living until they were 60 or 70 for as long as we have been around. So I'm a little skeptical because the big changes in life expectancy weren't because people were living longer. That's a silly mistake. It's because children were living longer. So if you look at mm. the chances of living to, say, be 60 or 70, once you manage to make it to 30, that hasn't changed terribly much. What's changed is your chances of actually making it to 10 when you were a child. That's the reason for the differences in life expectancy. Now, it's true that we have people living to be 90 now in a way that they wouldn't have done before. But the overarching extension of our lifespan happened early in our evolution and has continued. Now, having said that, it is certainly true that we've extended the period of childhood longer and longer over human history, so that now we have people in graduate school. As you who, say, 35 right, years old. Right, 35 year olds who haven't had children yet and who are still exploring and learning and trying to find things out. And that may indeed make our lives different. And yet in a different way, I mean, going back to the, the basic premise of your book, if we're grafting this utilitarian kind of framework onto child uh, parenting and the way we treat right. our children, aren't we deoxygenating childhood or yeah. taking childhood? Yeah, away? it's a funny. There's a funny again. There's a funny tension because in some ways we're extending it all into this much later period. In other ways, we're making it uh, more like adulthood, even <laughs> from very early on. In fact, you get this kind of bizarre thing happening now, which is that high school kids who are just at the point when they should be most wide-ranging and risk-taking are probably working harder than anybody else that you know. I, I just met a bright high schooler and her mother was saying, you know, she works much harder than I do to get into college. Right. But then in college, which is just the point at which you should be transitioning into adult work, people often feel like they're kind of lost because they don't know what they've been, that hard work they've been doing in high school is just work to get into college. That's right, the, right, right. That's the goal. And so, do you do you agree with? And is there like science supporting the kind of armchair psychological perspective that a lot of the problems that we're increasingly seeing psychologically in young people in terms of increased depression, anxiety, and the medications that are used to control them 
that they are somehow symptomatic of some of these broader changes that are going on? Well, you know, it has to be said that on many measures, um, young people nowadays are doing better than they ever have done before. Ah. So there's actually, it's, it's interesting, there's actually less crime, there's less teenage pregnancy, on lots of measures of sort of how well people are thriving. Mm. Um, uh, adolescents are actually doing, adolescents, teenagers, young people are doing, are doing really well. Huh. At the same time, I mean, again, it's this kind of irony in that, in some, many respects, they're doing very well, but there are increases in things like suicide rates in universities. So I think part of what happens is with each generation, this process, this cultural ratchet of taking what you've learned before and modifying and changing it to have something new, each time that happens, you end up with a new mix. And the new mix that we seem to have ended up with now is that in some respects, children are saner and doing better. In other respects, they're feeling more pressure and anxiety and fearfulness. So, you know, each generation has always complained about the next generation. That also goes with the cultural ratchet. But I do think, speaking as a baby boomer, that our parents complained a lot about us, but they didn't complain that we were fearful, right? I mean, right. the one thing that they really didn't think about us 60s kids was that we were scared and we were worried and we were afraid that something bad was going to happen to us. In fact, of course, just the opposite. We were <laughs> right, so right, insanely right. overconfident that we did insanely risky things without realizing all the bad things that could happen. And it does seem as if, if you look at, say, this generation of college kids, that there's a kind of fear, a kind of fragility in their self-image that's really, really different. And that might be connected mm. to the particular features of, of our life. One way I sometimes think about it is my gardener carpenter contrast has a nicer version in England where they actually, you know, everybody gardens, which right. is hot housing. So what we call helicopter parenting, they call hot housing, which I think is a gorgeous <laughs> description. So think about a hothouse orchid. Every little part of that orchid's life has been incredibly carefully controlled to turn it into this magnificent flower. Right. And now imagine that it had consciousness. What would it be thinking? And I think some of the time <laughs> it would be thinking, I am like the most fabulous, awesome <laughs> orchid in the world. But I think a lot more of that time it would be thinking, oh my God, did somebody leave the window open? Is there a cold breeze? Did somebody water me? Um, I am slightly too humid. I, I am not humid something enough. Something terrible might be happening to me in any moment. Um, and, you know, that might be a description of a certain subcategory, at least. <laughs> and what's totally fascinating, and this, I think, is what's most fascinating to me about the phenomenon of parenting as it is practiced, especially in, like, Park Slope, Brooklyn, and other places yeah. that I've been, is the certainty that parents, some parents seem to have about what is the right way to raise their children, given that we know almost nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, we know some things, but... Well, and, and of course, it's particularly ironic because the things that we do know, and we, there are some things that we know, is that, for example, children like the 20% of American children growing up in poverty are at risk in all sorts of ways as adults. And we know that uh, poverty, stress, isolation, things that a fifth of American children go through are, are bad for adult development, are bad for brain development. But the funny thing is that, of course, the Park Slope parents aren't making decisions about should I, you know, abandon my child in the street or not. They're making decisions about should the stroller face forward or should the stroller face backwards. And those kinds of sort of everything that you could consciously control as part of parenting, all of those things, as far as we can tell, have no predictable long-term effects at all. Right. And the things that you can't consciously control, which is just the world that your children grow up in, what the culture is at that moment, what they see about you, that particular random 
mix of what your genes are like and their genes are like and your upbringing and their upbringing, those are the things that are actually going to shape how they come out as adults. And those are just the things that you can't consciously control. I mean, some of the things you can control, right? Like, like not screaming like a maniac all the time, trying to create a relatively safe right. environment that also gives them room to explore, right? I mean... But I think those are exactly the things that you do pretty intuitively. So, right. you know, you don't have to sit and read a book to know that <laughs> to love your child in this insane, crazy, infatuated, you know, right. over-the-top, embarrassing way. That just kind of comes with the territory. You don't need to have a book to know that you keep your kid from running out into the street. So I think there's actually an interesting analogy to what Michael Pollan has said about the culture of food and dieting, where the more you try to consciously control it, the worse the outcomes become. And right. sort of my equivalent of his, you know, eat food, uh, not too much, mostly plants, is muddle, love your kids, follow your intuitions, muddle through, hope for the best. That's, that's about it in terms of what science actually gives you as a parenting advice. And make sure that that 20% or more of children have the kind of basic resources that they need to be able to thrive. I have had the thought that if we had a tax where the entire billion dollar industry of how-to and parenting books, if all that money went to universal preschool and maternal leave, I think that would have a much better impact on the future of children at both ends. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, so much time, so much money, so much energy spent like wringing hands and trying to do the um, right thing. And it's funny because the parenting model is so deep that it's very tempting and people are always asking this to say, oh, I see. So you're saying if you're a carpenter parent, your kids are going to be screwed up as adults. And if you're a gardener parent, <laughs> they're going to be good yeah. and creative and, uh, and you know, take over Silicon Valley as adults. And th the point is that's just not the right way of thinking about it. They'll come out the way that they're going to come out. That's going to be a complicated, noisy interaction between lots of variables. But here's something that I think you can control. Hmm. You can control whether you're a crazy maniac at the time that they're growing up or not. Right. You can control at least a bit whether you're constantly consumed with anxiety and guilt or whether you're enjoying the fact that you're doing one of the greatest things in the history of humanity, which is raising a, another generation of children. Um, right. And not just enjoying it, but also fetching about it and having a miserable time. But being in this profound relationship with another person without having this underlying message about how is this going to shape them as an adult. I mean, after all, if you're in other profound human relationships like marriages, they're tough and they're difficult and you have to work hard to make them work and sometimes they're full of joy and sometimes they're full of heartache. But you don't do them because your husband is going to come out better 20 years from now or you some people, think that. Some people do, but that doesn't <laughs> usually work out very well Exactly. For them. <laughs> you don't really want to be shaping, oh, I don't know, is he any better 20 years from now? I'm not sure if I was really a good <laughs> wife. And if you did, it would be creepy. It would undermine the relationship. And right. I think something like that is true about our relationships with our children as well. Parenting today is a little creepy. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Alison Gopnik, it has been wonderful speaking with you. Thanks for coming on Think Again today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Next week, for the first time in I don't know how long, I am going on vacation, and we're going to bring you a third um, mixtape of some of my favorite moments from the first year. There are so many great moments that... I literally had like seven segments left over when I was trying to create the first two mixtapes, so there's plenty of wonderful 
stuff to bring you. And for everyone who's liking the show, I know I say this all the time, but if you haven't done it already, please go to iTunes or Stitcher or Podcatcher or Spotify or wherever you're listening and rate or review us. I would personally greatly appreciate it. It makes a major difference in terms of our visibility. We'll be back next week with that mixtape. See you then. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.